The Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is brought to you by ITO Coaching and Performance. You can find them at itocoaching.com. ITO Coaching and Performance exists to build a community of athletes set on reaching goals and serving the community. They have a passion for helping people achieve their goals and dreams. ITO coaches are real people with phones, emails, and the desire to spend time with you during your training. They are vested in ITL athletes. ITL takes a communal approach to coaching, so there is always someone available to answer your questions and to help adjust the training schedule. An ITL coach will be glad to meet with you to chat about your goals and to find the best plan to help you meet those goals. Again, their website is itlcoaching.com. The Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is also brought to you by Blue Pineapple Travel. You can find them at bluepineappletravel.com. Blue Pineapple Travel are experienced travel agents who help you design the perfect trip. They are all well-traveled and knowledgeable, and they will be your advocates from start to finish. The agents at Blue Pineapple Travel love to help people plan their travel. Their goal is to match you with the trip that you want. Whether you are looking for relaxation or adventure, traveling solo or with a group, inside the U.S. or abroad, they are there to match you to the trip for you. Blue Pineapple Travel will help you curate all the travel information out there to create the exact vacation that you want. Again, their website is bluepineappletravel.com. And finally, the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is also brought to you by SlayRx. You can find them at www.slayrx.com. SlayRx is a sports nutrition company that makes products for athletes, team sports, and anyone that trains or works outdoors. SlayRx was founded by an endurance athlete and University of Georgia food scientist who was unhappy with the choices he was offered on course in long course triathlons. He started making his own mixes, and now you can enjoy those same mixes. SlayRx offers differing levels of electrolytes in their hydration products, and you can get them with or without calories. You can either take their online test at SlayRx.com, or you can be tested in their laboratory to determine the exact amount of liquid and electrolytes that you need to be consuming while racing. In addition to hydration products, SlayRx offers fueling products like their product Diesel, which is available with or without the optimum level of caffeine that is scientifically proven to legally enhance performance while limiting GI upset and diuretic impact. If you're looking for an alternative to gels, try SlayRx Spark Plug, a Pop Rocks-like powder that combines the same electrolytes that are in their other products, encapsulated caffeine, and quickly absorb carbohydrates. It comes in a plastic tube so it can be carried while running, and it will work to enhance and fuel your alertness, general happiness, and performance. Remember, tell them the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast sent you by using the coupon code PLEASANT2019 at checkout on the website, and you'll get 10% off of anything that you purchase there. That's www.slayerx.com and Pleasant 2019. Test Don't Guess with SlayerX. Thanks to all of our sponsors for helping us to bring you the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance, Blue Pineapple Travel, and Slayer X. This is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. We have for you today an interview with Dr. Kate Edwards. Uh, Kate is a physical therapist here in Atlanta, but we're actually not going to be talking about her physical therapy firm. Uh, she's the owner of Precision Performance and Physical Therapy, but that's just not going to be our focus today. She's also an author, and she's written two books. Uh, the first one was called Racing Heart, A Runner's Journey of Love, Loss, and Perseverance. And we're going to be talking a lot about that. Now, she also has a book called Stop and Pee, Running During Pregnancy and Postpartum, and that just came out, and we talk a little bit about that as well. Um, but we get to that tour towards the end of the interview. The main thing I wanted to talk to Kate about, and the thing that she was really, really generous with her time and, and um, was very open to us about, was her experience with ARVC. Um, now, as you'll hear described, she started running a lot when she was in high school and really started running a lot and falling in love with it when she got into college. But about the time she got into her mid-20s, she began to realize there was something not right inside of her body. Um, and even though it took about nine years to diagnose, uh, she suspected it had something to do with her heart. And she was told it probably had something to do with her heart, even though no car cardiologist could seem to nail it down. Ultimately, as soon as they did nail it down, um, they found that she was going to have to stop running entirely. Um, she, at the time, was a triathlete and, and a runner, and, and she had to give those up. Um, and so I was, I was interested in talking to her not only about what lessons she could share from her experience as a runner who had a serious heart condition, 
but also what it was like to be a runner who enjoyed running and appreciated all the benefits of running and for whom running was such a big part of her life uh, to suddenly being someone who couldn't run at all and was told that they could no longer do it. Um, and again, she had a lot of very interesting things to share um, and she made herself very vulnerable and I appreciated that. So I personally am looking forward to listening to this interview several times over uh, and I hope that you enjoy it as well. Let's get to our interview with Dr. Kate Edwards. Kate Edwards, welcome to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. Thank you for having me, George. I'm glad to be here. So I am, I'm psyched to have you here. This has been an ongoing project that I've been trying to get you here for just a little while. And I know a lot of people who listen have read your book, um, Racing Heart. And so we appreciate you being here with us. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. Well, so Kate, you've been a runner for, well, when did you start running? Um, well, I've been a runner off and on my whole life, but I think that it was really in college where I started racing and, um, my first race was a half marathon and that was, uh, my freshman year in college. Very good. Very good. Were you like immediate in love with it or was it, was it something that took a little time to grow into <laughs> or did you get there via some other sport or what? Oh no, I was in love with it from the moment I started, um, doing one mile or two miles mm. in high school. Mm. And it just kind of, it, it kept coming back to me. And it wasn't until college that I really figured out what it meant to be a runner. Mm. And um, the day that happened, it was over for me. It was a, it was a grand love affair. <laughs> it was love at first sight. <laughs> what, what, what do you mean you figured out what it meant to be a runner? Tell me what you mean by that. Um, I guess I didn't know. Well, of course, I didn't know what I was doing ever. Um, when I started, I would just, you know, go out for a run and then maybe not run again for another week or two or even a month. And then I'd go out for a five mile run mm -hmm. and then I'd, and then I'd run maybe, you know, I, I don't know, there was no consistency to it in the beginning, mm -hmm. um, in high school. And I ran in high school to, uh, get out of the house and clear my head mm -hmm. where, in college, it became more of something that I really loved to do, and I loved every aspect of it. I mm -hmm. loved the aspect of the clothes that you wore, the friends that you meet, the food you ate, the schedule that it provided. Mm -hmm. And so I think that it was really in college where it started to become um, the fabric of my personal identity. For sure. I totally get that, and that's something I want to revisit in just a little while here. But it's funny because like, all those things you just described – uh, you know, the clothing you wear and the foods that you eat and the people that you meet and the routine of your day and all those sorts of things. Like, yeah. Th that's not what I got into at first. I really liked the competitiveness. Um, and I really like competing and trying to go fast and that sort of thing. And as yeah. I've continued to be a runner for decades, I've found that those secondary things have become more primary. Do you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. And I, you know, I didn't actually care about speed in the beginning because I didn't know that I was fast mm -hmm. because I had no idea what fast was. Mm -hmm. So when I started, it was, it was the routine and, and all of those things I spoke of that I really fell in love with. And then all of a sudden one day I realized I was kind of fast right and I was never amazing, but I was, I was definitely um, quick and could win some things. So once that happened, it was, that was bad news. Right on, right on. <laughs> So, so you settled first around a half marathon, you said, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. And then ultimately, I know you moved on to marathons. I did. I I keep wondering. I have to count. I, I did like 13 or 14 marathons mm -hmm. total. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, some of them didn't count completely <laughs> because I didn't finish. But um, I think there's only one I didn't finish. And, um, yeah, I just I ran as much as I could. I did several half marathons at least 50, but I'm sure more than that because you stop counting after a while. And then a few, yeah. De definitely, you definitely stop counting before 50. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, keep going, keep going. Um, but I also did, you know, five K's and 10 K's. I didn't really like them because I thought they were harder than a marathon or a half mm -hmm. marathon mm -hmm. I, um, from a psychological standpoint, mm -hmm. because I felt like you had to go fast the whole time mm -hmm. where you could kind of ease into it for the endurance events. Mm -hmm. um, and then I got into triathlon later. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very good. Very good. And then 50 triathlons. How many triathlons? Did you do? <laughs> yeah, a handful. <laughs> I only got to do a handful. I wanted to do um, a lot and I had big dreams, but um, I think it ended up probably closer to uh, under 10 probably. Okay. Very good. Very good. Um, so let's talk about kind of Let's, let's sort of start going to the timeline here because I want to get to those big dreams and, and what prevented you from those big dreams. So Philadelphia sure. Marathon, uh, what year was that Philadelphia Marathon, that fateful Philadelphia Marathon that you talk about in the introduction of your book? Oh, yeah, um, I'm, 
I'm so bad, George, about dates. So <laughs> I think it was 2007. I know it's my story, but that's the part that it starts to all go together. I think it was 2007. Okay, so right, so right around that time, you're running the Philadelphia Marathon, and at this point, you're not a new marathoner, right? No, I'd run a few before, and a few good ones, and a couple not so good ones. Right, right. As most of us have done, and then right. take us through like the last, the back half, and the last 10k of that marathon. Sure, I was actually feeling great. It was a very cool day. Um, I I don't know exactly, but probably the 50s because that was my favorite um, to run in. And I remember running, and I was on pace to qualify for the Boston Marathon. And it was going to be the first time I was going to qualify for Boston. So I was very, very excited. Um, So I kept going. And then I really started to feel bad. I actually thought, huh, I wonder what's going on. And, you know, you have this whole idea of hitting the wall. I thought I was hitting the wall, which I wasn't. Um, All of a sudden, I lost control of my bladder. And I thought, "Uh uh-oh, is this normal? And then I blacked out. And at this point, I could see the finish line. Mm-hmm. And all I remember are two people, and I still to this day have no idea who they were. I wish that I knew, um, grabbed me underneath the armpits. And I heard them talking to me a little bit. I don't remember what they were saying. The only thing that I did catch was if you don't cross on your feet, it doesn't count. Mm-hmm. And so. I somehow they got me close to the finish line and I don't really know where I was in relationship to it. I just remember seeing it. Mm -hmm. They got me to the finish line and I crossed the finish line with my arms in the air as if nothing had happened. Mm -hmm. But I don't remember a second of it. Mm -hmm. I remember waking up in a wheelchair Mm -hmm. um, at at the other side of the finish line and then passing out again. And I was in the medical tent and I woke up in the medical tent. Mm -hmm. Um, surrounded by, you know, EKGs, lots of people around me. And I was incredibly confused. Mm -hmm. Um, the only reason I knew that I finished was because about, you know, several hours later after I got out of the medical tent, I went and looked to see if I finished and I looked up my time and I looked up pictures and there were pictures of me, um, crossing the line with my arms up Mm. and I just don't remember it, but I was covered in bruises and blood, I had blood everywhere and I had scrapes all over my knees and my arms and my face. And okay, so two questions spring immediately to mind. One, what did that look like looking at pictures of yourself crossing a finish line that you had no memory of finishing? It was surreal. I I actually looked and I said, "Is that really me? Right. I have I can't believe that's me." And and the fact that I was me and I looked completely fine right. was incredible. Yeah, you're raising your hands in celebration. Yes, like, absolutely. Like like you normally would. Yeah, that's right. Seems, yeah. Bizarre. That's... And I asked when I woke up, where's my medal? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you did. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, man. And so the other question is, so when you're in the medical tent, what are they telling you? When, when, when you're kind of, I guess, sort of slightly incoherent and, and trying to figure things out. I mean, what are they telling you when you're in there? Not a lot, to be honest with you. And and I don't remember everything. Mm-hmm. Um, my best friend, her name's also um, Kate, one of my best friends. She ended up in the medical tent with me when they must have called her or something. Somehow she ended up in there. Um, and they were telling her mostly what was going on. But what I remember is they said, um, I asked if I was dehydrated. And they said they didn't think it was dehydration. I needed to follow up with a cardiologist once mm-hmm. I left. And um I was in there for hours. I don't remember how long. And they monitored me until they felt like I was safe and then sent me home and said, go see a cardiologist. So, so they, so they had an indication or at least an idea that there was something cardiological. I mean, uh, yes, most, uh, so what most of us don't realize is that if you black out in a race, it's almost always cardio, uh, cardio. It's, it's rarely dehydration. It's almost always cardiovascular. Really? Okay. Yeah. But I I didn't know that (laughs) <laughs> I, I certainly didn't know that yet. And at this point, at this point, how old were you? Uh, 25. Yeah. And so, so, so cardiological stuff is really not even on your radar, I would imagine, right? No, not at all. And honestly, none of my doctors either. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. yeah. 25 years old, not really thinking about it. You run marathons, you're healthy, right? I mean. Yes. And I think that's the big misconception is, um, I was healthy in every other way. Mm-hmm. And, um, I went. I ended up going to a cardiologist. I don't know if you want me to get into this right now, but um, well, the next step up, was going to be wh- wh- when did you go to the cardiologist? So yeah, go ahead. 
Yeah. So I went to the cardiologist when I got home. Um, I went to a cardiologist and had um, lots of testing. I had stress tests. I had EK, um, EKGs. I had echocardiogram. I had everything. And um, they couldn't reproduce it. And they said that I was fine and it was just dehydration. So I passed all of the tests, all of the tests that they could throw at me. And they said, there's nothing wrong with you. You're 25 years old. You're a marathon runner. Go back and start running. So I did. Okay. That's, that's, well, since I know the rest of the story, that's alarming. Um, so, yes. so, so then take us to the next step. I mean, so, so, so you get a clean bill of health. I presume you went out for a run, right? Yeah, I think that day I might've ran home from the clinic for all I know. <laughs> <laughs> Most likely I did. I was terrified um, that something was really wrong with me. And then they said there wasn't. And right. so I, I know I ran that day um, oh, sure. and then continue, continued to run mm-hmm. and train. Mm-hmm. And so, so, so when did you sort of get an indication or when did you, when did you come to realize that, wait, maybe they didn't quite give me the right indication or when, when did you realize that, that there, yeah, there actually still was something wrong and maybe it wasn't just dehydration? Well, really, honestly, nine years later, but there were things in between that happened mm-hmm. that, um, if. I was looking at a patient and they were telling me the story. I would have told them there was something wrong, but because it was me, I didn't recognize it. Um, so within those nine years, I had, I believe there were two other marathons I passed out in. I can't remember if it was one or two, because I think one, I passed out in one before Philly. Mm -hmm. Um, but I had passed out in three total. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, so Chicago marathon I passed out in, and that was really, really scary as well. I was again, felt great. Um, was, you know, running eight minute miles. Um, my husband said he felt sick. He was running. So I left him mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, at mile 18, I said, you know what? I feel like I need to sit down. That's the only indication I had. And I ran to the side of the road. I sat down and then I woke up. I don't know how long later with my legs in the air with a police officer there and an ambulance. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, again, I went to the hospital and they told me I was dehydrated. They did all the tests. I passed everything. Mm-hmm. I didn't do um, stress tests, but, you know, I was in the ER, so they probably assumed it was dehydration. Um, and so they sent me home again and didn't tell me I needed follow-up. Mm-hmm. And um, I kept going. And then after that, um, there were a couple incidents of VTAC, but I didn't realize that's what they were. Mm-hmm. Um VTAC is when your heart rate increases tremendously. Mm-hmm. So um, my heart went from, I wasn't tracking at this point, but um, it would go, for instance, from like 150 beats per minute to suddenly 250 or 300 um, during a workout. Mm-hmm. And then I would get off the treadmill and I'd walk around and I'd calm down. And then I wouldn't, I didn't tell anybody because yeah. I thought it was in my head mm-hmm. and I thought it was anxiety because I'd been cleared. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. But so deep down you had in your head though, this, maybe this is, maybe there was something cardiological, maybe they didn't find it that first time. And I mean, that, 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 that sneaking suspicion is like deep in your subconscious, right? Absolutely. I, I always knew that something was probably wrong, but I didn't actually mm-hmm. want to admit it. Sure. I would mm-hmm. totally be that way. I think that's fair. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would 100% be that way. And actually, the fact that I would be that way kind of alarms me, kind of scares me a little bit. Um, <laughs> well, well, that's the yeah. reason I'm sharing my story, yeah. honestly, is because mm-hmm. I think all of us as athletes think we're invincible. Or even if we don't tell ourselves we think we're invincible, we think we're invincible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And because we take such good care of our bodies and because we do all the things that we're supposed to do in quotation marks, we feel like we're fine. And mm-hmm. I was that person for sure. For sure. Okay, so so when when did you realize you weren't invincible? What what was the, what was the big come to Jesus moment? Yeah, so it was uh, on my son's very first birthday. He was one, and I just dropped him off um, at his daycare, and I had a morning to myself, so I went out for a typical five mile run, just a run around the neighborhood that I would do. I was training for half Ironman at the time, mm-hmm. the elusive half Ironman. It was the third <laughs> time I was trying to do it. Um, and I went out for a run and I didn't feel good. I felt really, really tired, Mm -hmm. but I was one year postpartum. Mm -hmm. I was exhausted from having a child. Mm -hmm. I was breastfeeding and I heard that all of those things made you tired. Mm -hmm. So I kept saying to everybody, I'm really tired. I'm really tired. And everybody told me that was normal. Mm -hmm. So I went out and 
I was running and then I would get a little short of breath. So I'd slow down and stop, start walking. And then I would beat myself up and I would say, what's wrong with you? You can do this. Like what, what, what's going on? Are you just not training hard enough? And, you know, I had a lot of negative self-talk, which was really unfortunate, but true at the time. And, um, I just kept pushing harder. Mm -hmm. And so every time I couldn't do it, I'd get mad and go faster and harder. And then by the last half mile, I had to walk a little bit. I said, screw this. I'm done. I'm just going to sprint in. Mm -hmm. So I sprinted the last half mile feeling awful. And as soon as I stopped, I went into VTAC again. Mm -hmm. And so my heart rate got to at least 300, 350 and my Garmin stopped tracking it. Um, I felt really dizzy. I could see my heart. I I could see it. I I don't know how to explain it except for it was outside of my chest. Um, my sports bra felt really, really tight and, Mm -hmm. um, and everything just started getting, you know, like narrower. Mm-hmm. So I sat down on my front steps and put my head between my knees and did everything I knew to do. Um, I just started breathing and really slowing down my breath, trying to calm myself down. And I thought, I think this is it. I'm not going to go inside because if I go inside, my husband might come home to me dead on the floor. So I think I'll sit out here so somebody else finds me. Mm-hmm. Um, but it stopped, which I'm pretty amazed at. Um I was able to convert and I went back into a normal heart rhythm. Hmm. I was very, very lucky because most people with what I have, that doesn't happen. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> no, it's, that's, that's a disturbing story. I, um, so you said, all right, since I survived this episode, I'm going to go see a cardiologist. And, and so you went finally and, and what did they do different? How did they find, find that there was in fact a problem? How did they ultimately diagnose you? Sure. It took a long time. It actually took about nine months to figure out the final diagnosis, which was that in itself was really, really hard from a psychological standpoint. I was, I was slowly losing every part of me is, is the way that I really felt. Um, but the thing that he did the very first day that nobody else did was he asked me when my symptoms came on and if I could make them come on. And I said, yeah, of course I can. And nobody had ever asked me that. And I think it's pretty novel, but I also think it's good for people to hear as mm-hmm. if that are in the medical field, ask your patient. Mm-hmm. Um, so he put me through a stress test. I passed everything and I passed the normal stress test. But mm-hmm. while we were doing it, he said, can you make it come on? So we jacked up the, um, the speed really, really high. So I was sprinting mm-hmm. and we increased the incline quite a bit. And then I went into VTAC okay. and I felt, and I felt fine. I didn't know I was in VTAC. Okay. And he pulled me from the treadmill, stopped everything, pulled me off the treadmill and said, get off the treadmill. Are you okay? And I said, what's wrong? I'm fine. Hmm. And he said that, um, he couldn't believe I was still standing with the, what was on the screen. Mm -hmm. Wow. So what was the diagnosis? Eventually after the nine months, they had uh, diagnosed me with arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy, uh, which we can call ARVC. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, essentially what it is, is there is an issue in the genes in the heart and the desmosomes of the cells, they're like little bridges, they break. Okay. And when those bridges break, the cell itself dies and part of the heart muscle dies. Okay. And when those uh, pieces of the heart muscle die, then the electrical system doesn't work the way that it's meant to because it affects the um, electrical system because it scars interrupting it. So that's the first part of it. And so um, the electrical sub- uh, system becomes disrupted. And then over time, um, they say it's progressive. Mm-hmm. I beg to differ. <laughs> okay. um, uh, they say it's progressive that over time, uh, the heart muscle continues to die and then the ventricle becomes floppy and you may or may not end up with a heart transplant. Okay. Okay. You say, okay, so, so two questions then I, that, that spring immediately to mind. One, yeah. why did it take so long? I mean, why, why did it, I mean, it, obviously it's not a straightforward diagnosis, but, but yeah. between missing it several times and various doctors missing it the first time. And then even after, you know, it was brought on in lab conditions, it still took nine months. Why did it take so long? Why is it such an elusive diagnosis? Well, because there aren't many people that have it and because most people that have it die before they come into a clinic. So sudden death is the number one way you find out you have this. Okay. Um, And so 
that's part of it. But it's ultimately my case didn't present like most ARVC cases. In fact, they wrote a case study about me to help raise awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, but I passed all the tests. I continued to pass all the, pass all the tests. Mm-hmm. And eventually they went back around and redid some of the tests. And mm-hmm. they found um, the gold standard is uh, MRI for it. And mm-hmm. I had a really small spot on the MRI the first time around they didn't think was anything. And then they decided to do genetic testing and the genetic testing is kind of what sealed the deal. Okay. Okay. Second thing you said, you disagree that it's progressive. (laughs) (laughs) So you you knew I was going to ask you about that. I I should also mention at this point, and I I mentioned this during the intro, but, but Kate is a doctor of physical therapy. And so, so, and an adjunct professor at Emory as a matter of fact. And so, so Kate, Kate, Kate speak comes from a place of, of understanding and knowledge uh, when it comes to, to issues of, of physiology. So I, 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 should, I should say that as well. Um, and so, so, so you're, you're not just spouting off their diagnosis that, 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 you, that you memorized from the, the, the crib sheet that your, your cardiologist gave you. I mean, this is something I imagine you've thrown yourself into. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so given that and then given your experience and, and given the research you've done and everything else, why do you think that it's, it's not progressive? So everybody that I know would disagree (laughs) in terms of cardiologists, but I think there is a lot to this particular disease as there are, um, as there's to other diseases that, um, lifestyle and how you approach it can make a huge difference. So they thought that I would be, uh, would have progressed more than I have. And Mm -hmm. I've really, once I got the diagnosis, I really haven't progressed at all. And I think it's because I've changed my lifestyle. So, um, I've dealt with some things. I've changed my mindset around pushing myself and my body really, really hard Mm -hmm. all the time. Mm -hmm. I have changed my diet. I've changed, um, how much stress is in my life Mm -hmm. and how I manage that stress. And I think all of those things that oftentimes are overlooked in the medical world have a huge impact on my disease, but many, many other diseases. So, it may be progressive, but I think that you can do something about it. You have a little bit of control over how fast it progresses or hopefully if it does. Right. I was going to say you can slow the progression. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. that's huge. I mean, that, and that's, that's, I think that's, that's something obviously physical that's important, but, all, but I would think that would give you a mental boost as well to know that it's, you're not just on this, this path you can't get off, that you can actually slow the progress, right? I think so. And, you know, I don't know what everybody else's case is. I mean, everybody's different how they progress. And mine was a little bit different. um, And that's why they did a case study on it. So, but I really believe that we do have some power and some control over what we're doing based on our mindset. Mm -hmm. So, so in addition to those factors that that you've done, that you've reduced stress in your life and, and, and you've changed your diet and that sort of thing. um, I know that, that, that they had to, didn't you, then they, they give you a pacemaker, right? Yeah. Yeah, Well, it's a, it's a defibrillator. So I don't actually, I'm not ever paced. It's not a pacemaker, but it's essentially the same thing. And so, so, so if you start to go into VTAC again, it shocks you. Oh yeah. All right. Like, yes, it's like, uh, yes. Um, and so tell me, have, have, has, has it shocked you? I mean, has it, has it, has it acted, has it done its job on you before? Yes, it has. Um, it's done it twice. Okay. And the first time was a malfunction. So there was nothing wrong with my heart, which is, which is great. <laughs> it's good to laugh was, about it. I'm only yeah. laughing about it because you're laughing about it, Kate. <laughs> it's totally fine. Now I'm laughing about it. At the time, okay. it was not funny because um, it, it was not funny at all. It was the first time that it happened. I was actually in a yoga class and mm-hmm. I was doing a side plank. Mm-hmm. And my, um, my defibrillator is underneath my arm. So you don't see it above my chest. Like most of them that you see it's under my arm. You can't see it. And so I was in a side plank and all the muscle contractions, because it was very hard, (laughs) um, caused my defibrillator to think that it was my heart in ventricular Mm -hmm. tachycardia when it was really just mild potentials from my muscles. Gotcha. Um, so it was strong enough to shoot me into somebody else. Um, so I left my mat and was on somebody else's mat. Gives a nice little, yes. nice, nice little element of, uh, of, of excitement into what was otherwise a dull routine yoga class. 
That's right. <laughs> yeah. as, as if I didn't already have a reason to dislike side planks, now I dislike them even more. But, but the, the, the particularly funny thing about that, and this is the last joke I'll make about it, I promise, is... No, it's okay. Clearly, they were not doing side planks as part of the quality control process at the defibrillation factory, you know? No, they were not. And, and it was very funny because they gave it to me, this type of defibrillator, because I'm young and they knew I was going to do stuff. Mm. But for some reason, they didn't work out those kinks. And right. a week later, I was in the doctor's office doing side planks on the floor with the rep, mm -hmm. looking at what the mild potentials were doing. And mm -hmm. I was doing all sorts of exercise. I mean, I, I was doing crazy things in there on my arms just mm -hmm. to see if we could make it go off. Of course, yeah. they changed it so that it wouldn't shock me. Okay. Okay. Well, okay. And then what was the other time? And the other time, unfortunately, was my heart, but I know why. Mm -hmm. I was in Italy. It was the end of a six-week trip to Italy um, where we had been traveling around a lot, and we'd done a lot of hiking, mm -hmm. and um, I was exhausted. And I had had a glass of Prosecco that night and then decided to dance with my son. And I think that all of that together, um, the six-week trip, being exhausted, doing a lot of activity, uh, having a little bit of Prosecco and then deciding to dance. And when I dance, it's not, um, let's just say I love dancing. <laughs> let's just say I love that. And it's not tame. So um, I started doing that and then I knew it was going to happen. I could feel it because it was my heart. I got all the heart symptoms. So mm -hmm. I grabbed my husband to take my son and I laid down on the ground mm -hmm. and it shocked me there. So I didn't run okay. into anybody. I didn't hurt anybody else because I was already Very on good. my back. Very good. You know, Kate, that one might have been worth it. <laughs> if, you, if, if you describe, like, you know, what would be a perfect moment to you? Well, you know, we're at the tail end of an Italian vacation, and we have a wonderful meal, and I, I have a, a, a glass of Prosecco, and I'm dancing with my son. I, mean, I know, it is it sounds, pretty perfect. sounds kind of wonderful, actually, you know? Might even be worth a, a, a defibrillator malfunction, a, a little shock that you get. So maybe. Yes, I say maybe. That. You're the one getting shocked, and I'm like, oh, yeah, no, it's totally worth it. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. Uh, at the time, again, it wasn't so good, but um, now I, I, I can laugh about it, and mm -hmm. it was completely worth it. Sure, right on. Um, so that does make me, and so that does lead into the next thing, in that, and I think this is important as well. And so, so you've got this this ARVC diagnosis, and and mm -hmm. um, you did have to to stop running. And we want to talk about that in a little while, uh, in just a second here. But 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 it's not like you're you're on bed rest for the rest of your life. I mean, you're still doing yoga, you're still taking vacations, you're still dancing wildly with your son, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, and I think that's cool. I think that's yeah, important. I, I think it is. I mean, I have a lot of restrictions. I think that's part of this is I have a lot of restrictions. I'm not allowed to get my heart rate up high. I'm not allowed to run and bike and swim um, or do anything strenuous, really. But if you look at the flip side of it, there's still so much that I can do. Mm -hmm. And I do yoga four or five times a week. I do strength training three times a week. Mm -hmm. It's um, modified. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, I still hike and I spend time with my family. And, you know, last week I actually tried an electric bike which I was um, dead set against because mm. I wanted to feel it and work mm. out as hard as possible. But since I'm not allowed to do that, the mm. electric bike was amazing. E-bikes are in style, Kate. So, you know. <laughs> well, I'm pretty cool, George. You're right on the cutting <laughs> edge, clearly. So, uh, very good. Well, so, so the other thing that I wonder, too, and, and, and maybe these are related questions, and, and this is something that I think about for myself because, as I said, as I've gone on, you know, now that I've been a runner for so long, all those things that were secondary initially have become just fundamental parts of who I am and how I live my life. Yeah. Um, and so if you were to suddenly say, hey, George, you can't do this anymore, that'd be a pretty radical recentering of my life. Um, and and that, that would take probably a long time for me to reinvent myself. Um, so for lack of a better way of asking it, how'd you do it? I mean, how are you doing it? Yes, um, I I had to make a choice, right? Mm -hmm. So our decision is pretty simple. And I think, honestly, if I didn't have my son, I sometimes say I think my son saved my life because I think I would have been angrier for a lot longer. Mm -hmm. I think that I wouldn't have made as good of decisions because mm -hmm. if it had just been me. But mm -hmm. um, 
I got help. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I got help from a psychologist and a life coach, and she really helped me learn how to change my mindset and flip things. And mm-hmm. she made me realize that, like what I said earlier, okay, I lost all of these things that were integral parts of myself, but there really are other things. So she helped me build my toolbox. Mm-hmm. Um, So that's something I actually talk to my patients about when they're injured a lot is that if you are an endurance athlete or any kind of athlete and you don't have anything in your toolbox except endurance sports, Mm -hmm. then you're in big trouble. Mm -hmm. So when you get injured or you have something like what happened to me, you don't have anything to go back on. And your toolbox can be anything. So for me, it's writing. So I've written a couple books. Mm -hmm. Um, I decided to open a practice, which Mm -hmm. is something I did. And then, um, you know, yoga, meditation and those types of things, but it doesn't have to be that it can be anything you Mm -hmm. can. I know somebody that has actually has ARVC that now does a lot of hiking. Mm -hmm. And, um, so you just have to find something else that you can love. You don't have to love it as much. Mm -hmm. I'll be honest with you. If I was told I could run tomorrow, I might drop half the new things that I'm doing now (laughs) and go back to it. Um, I still, I still have a hard time, especially this time of year. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But I have to remember that it's okay to have a hard time mm-hmm. and that, you know, it's you're going to get through it. Mm-hmm. So I just kind of learn to sit with it and move forward. Right on. So, so you mentioned that, that, you know, the conversation about toolboxes is, is something that you have with the athletes that you work with when they're injured as a physical therapist. Mm-hmm. You, yeah. you were, so you mentioned that the, the, this first kind of came on when you were 25, when did you when did you complete your training to become a physical therapist? When I was twenty six, it okay. was part. It was during yeah. So, so so it's kind of parallel almost, right? Um, Absolutely. And so so how has how has this whole experience informed your approach to working with patients as a physical therapist? So it's been great for my it's been great for my patients to be hmm. honest with you. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that it was really good that I was an endurance athlete and did so many races prior to this happening because I can truly understand where my patients are um, mm-hmm. when they're coming to me and their mindsets, mm-hmm. um, unlike people who have never been in that world. Mm-hmm. But then to lose it, I think, helps me a lot more in terms of empathy and really being able to sit with a patient and understand what they're going through or at least empathize it mm-hmm. with it. Mm-hmm. and um, help to give them tools to get through. So mm-hmm. um, I think it's been helpful from that perspective, just really the psychological perspective. But then also knowing that as endurance athletes, there's so many other things that we can do in other directions you can be pointed in. And I have all those resources. So I have people to talk to. Mm-hmm. I have ideas about what else you can do, mm-hmm. um, which I wouldn't have had before. Mm-hmm. Right on. So I th- I think that that's probably the biggest piece. And also, actually, the other piece is um, recognizing symptoms that don't make sense. Mm-hmm. So um, mm-hmm. I, don't know if, I don't know if I wrote this in my book or not, but I had a patient um, not long after I was diagnosed that came with some really strange symptoms. And it didn't make sense to me, so I sent him to, to somebody else. Mm-hmm. And the, the physician I sent him to said, oh, it's no big deal, it's... Um, asthma, exercise induced asthma. Mm-hmm. And I, I knew it wasn't. <laughs> so I sent him back and he was supposed to do a triathlon. I think it was like a Olympic triathlon mm-hmm. that weekend. And we went back and forth and I said, look, just please, for the sake of this, don't do the race. Just go to the doctor, just skip this race. And he skipped the race and we found out he had a pulmonary embolism. Mm-hmm. And so I think that I'm more sensitive to things getting missed and I take a little bit more time hearing the patient's story to put things together because I've been in their shoes. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Um, very good. Well, there was another question that kind of popped into my mind. I haven't quite figured out how to articulate it just yet. So I'm going to ask you this other question first. Sure. Sure. <laughs> um, um, and so, so uh, you talked about opening your business there. Um, mm-hmm. um, and you talked about, of course, about writing the two books that you've written. Um, which one of those do you want to talk about first? <laughs> Cause I want to talk about uh, both of them. Yeah. Let's talk. We can talk about the business first. With, let's talk like about the business plan. first. So, so, yeah, so, sure. so was that maybe 2016, 2017, you opened up your business or was it before that? I think it was 
like that. Okay, about <laughs> you said you're bad at timing, so I'm, I'm trying to help you it out. Was, it was at the end. It was like November 9th. I know it was November 9th. Okay, very good. <laughs> November 9th of some year. <laughs> we're, we're, you know, we're coming up on a particular anniversary. Don't know which one, but... <laughs> oh, it's so true. My poor husband. <laughs> very good, um, yes. very good. Um, and so, so, like, what was that like? I mean, um, what, what, what made you want to actually begin your own, own um, practice? And, and is that related to your own experience that you've had? Yes and no. Uh, okay. The first thing I'll say is, as an endurance athlete, I'm a type A personality and I have a lot of energy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I needed somewhere to put all of my passion for yeah. what I loved yeah. I couldn't run anymore. I couldn't do triathlon, but I love triathlon and I love running. So mm-hmm. I needed to figure out a way to harness all my energy and all my passion and do something with it. Mm-hmm. And that's that's one of the reasons. Um, but even before that, I started my practice by leaving the practice I was at because I was tired and I needed a break. And I had just gone through so much emotionally that I just didn't know what I was going to do next. Mm-hmm. And so I actually rented a room somewhere in the center for love and light and, uh, tried to hide. (laughs) It didn't go very well. Um, within my first week, I was already booked up for several months and I thought, "Uh Oh, all right, I guess I'm not going to hide. And then I, I took that passion and turned it into a practice. Right on. Very good. So, and, and so, so I think I'm better able to articulate the question I wanted to ask before. So on like sure. the, on the very second episode of this podcast, I want to say it was, it might have been the third, but I mean, it was super early on. Um, I talked about some of the research around what are called prevented runners. Um, and, and prevented runners are people who want to run but can't. Um, hmm. And it might be because they're, they're injured or something else like that. And I was talking about it because when I started this podcast, I was injured. And, and yeah. I had all this energy and all these, these things I wanted to share. And so I started a podcast. Um, and, 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 and even though, you know, uh, knock on wood, I'm not, I'm not injured now. I'm no longer prevented. Um, I'm curtailed maybe, but not no longer prevented. I've still tried to keep the podcast going. But anyway, um, but it talked about the research found that the prevented runners or prevented athletes in general have, you know, wild mood swings. Um, and, and they tend to be much more irritable um, and, and things like that. <laughs> Um, and so, so the question I wanted to ask is, do you consider yourself a prevented runner? <laughs> Are you right. just asking if I'm moody? <laughs> I, I, I'm really not though, because, because, and because I want to know, is, is that something you can, you get over if that makes sense? Like you don't, you don't get over it. Okay, so I can, mean, can you talk about that? Yeah. So, I mean, okay. To be completely vulnerable with you last week, I had a serious meltdown because it was the first week that I it am, was. I am going to put this on Spotify and Stitcher and Apple podcasts. So you're being vulnerable, <laughs> so, man. I appreciate it, but I just want to give you a quick disclaimer. Don't forget this actually is a podcast people listen to. Not a lot of people, but people. <laughs> That's all right. No, I all mean, right. I'm not going to say anything too crazy. Right, um, I'm just being vulnerable in the fact that I still have times where it's really hard for me. And last week it was really the first Last week or the week before was really the first week in Atlanta that was so yeah. beautiful yeah. out and all I wanted to do was run. And I, we supported a race in Serenby, a trail race. We, mm-hmm. um, and we went there and my husband ran it and he got second place in his age group. And then the very next day we were home and he was like, you know what? I really want to go for a run. And he uh, went for a run. And after he got back, I just couldn't stop crying. And it just hit me and it hasn't hit me in a few years. Um, but I, I tell you that because it still happens. Like I will, I'll just, I just cried for a few hours to be honest with you. And I just sat with it and let it go and journaled and did some meditation and yoga and I have been fine. But even over the last week or so, I've missed it a lot more than I usually miss it. And so I do think that I would fall into that prevented runner category. I don't have mood swings. <laughs> um, well, I don't know. Ask my husband, really. But um, I don't have big mood swings anymore. I used to, absolutely. Um, but now I don't because I've worked so hard on being with it and managing it. And now instead of the big mood swings, when something like that happens where I'm really upset, Instead of trying to push it all down and pretend it's not happening, I sit with it and just let it go. Yeah, and just cry it out. Yeah, and that, that's important. I mean, and, and I think that's the reason why I, when I did that research, when I recorded that podcast, oh so long ago, 
that that was one of my big takeaways and, and something I tried to share with people that were listening was to say, this is normal. Um, yeah. and, and, and just go ahead and feel those feelings. Do you know? Um, absolutely. Because, because I do think, I mean, you know, you talked a little while ago and it was in a different context about sort of negative self-talk and kind of beating yourself up and all that sort of thing. But mm-hmm. I, I do think that, that we do tend to be very critical of ourselves as, as endurance athletes. Um, and that, that if we start to get mopey because we can't run, we're like, oh, come on, you know, it's just running or, you know, I, you know so. I, I think you're absolutely right. But the, but that comment that you said, it's just running, it's not just running. And yeah. we all know it's not just running. And yeah. we all know it's not just triathlon. It's your life. It's your yeah. friends. It's what you eat. It's what you wear. It's uh, why you wake up in the morning at 5 a.m. when most people or 4.30 a.m. when most people are sleeping till 7 so I think that we just need to remind ourselves that. And that's right. We have to do a better job of not beating ourselves up and just saying, hey, look, this is what I have been able to do in the past. And I'm grateful for that. And look at what I can do now. And it's harder to accept that and say that when you've never been in a place where you couldn't do it. But having been in a place where I can't do it and I haven't been able to in a long time, it's much easier to say things like that and really understand the importance of it. And like you said, I think that that helps you be a more empathic physical therapist. Um, and I think that's a good thing. Uh, yeah, for sure. Very good. Well, let's talk then about another one of the tools in your toolbox. Let's talk about your books. So, uh, the book of yours, I, I haven't read your, your second book yet. The one that just came out. But, um, <laughs> oh, but why? So, so, well, <laughs> because, because running during pregnancy and postpartum is, is not a real big issue for me, but, but I do want to know a lot about it. So, so I will ultimately read it, I'm sure. But, but no, I read, I read racing hard. I read, read your first book, uh, that came out in, um, 2018, uh, February, 2018. Mm-hmm. Um, so what inspired you to, to write the book? What, besides just, you know, wanting to, to share your story and, and put your passion into something that would be interesting um, and worthwhile. I mean, what, 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 what did you really want people to get from your book when they read it? A couple things. I wanted them to know that they weren't alone. And when you lose something you love, whether it is endurance sports or it is, I don't know, your job or something else, that um, it's not over. You can keep going. And, you know, you decide if you're going to be happy ultimately in your life. You choose to be happy or not. Um, I thought that that was a really important message. But I also wanted to let people know um, in the endurance athlete community that if some you, we know our bodies so well, right. And sometimes we don't listen to our bodies. Most of the time we don't listen to them. Um, but we know them we, well we, enough. We, may, if, we, may, we make a point not to at times. Um, exactly. I mean, I, I, you, I read a piece of writing just this past week that said, Hey, you kind of need to stop listening to it at times. Um, I think that's sort of part of what we train ourselves to do, but keep going. Yeah. Well, and so that's right. So we're trained to think that if we're not doing something well, something's not working in our training, we've done something wrong. Mm -hmm. We haven't eaten the right thing. We haven't slept enough. We haven't done X, Y, and Z. Um, I think it's important for people to know that if you're feeling something and it doesn't feel right, just get it checked out. Mm -hmm. That's it. Just actually go do something about it. Don't push it down. Don't hide it. Um, I, I feel very, very lucky to be here, and I had several occasions where I could have died, and it was because I was too stubborn to actually figure it out or listen to my body. So I, I wanted to bring that up. I think that's definitely part of it. And then, um, yeah, just bring bring awareness to cardiac disease and endurance athletes. Mm-hmm. So with that in mind, and this is one of those questions that I ask that that I hesitate to ask for selfish reasons. Mm-hmm. Um. So you were 25. Yeah. Um, and so, so, and, and, and as we already talked about, like cardiologist was not even on your radar and all that sort of thing. Um, right. For, I, I think generally speaking, most endurance athletes, regardless of their age, are just not really thinking about cardiologists and all that sort of thing. It's not on their radar because like, oh, you know, my resting heart rate is 41 beats a minute and, and I'm, I'm in good shape and mm-hmm. I watch what I eat, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What do you recommend based on your experience? Um, uh, as far as going to see a cardiologist, who should go see them? How often should they see them? That sort of thing. So first thing is that, um, what the cardiologist that I work with, and actually he comes and does lectures for my classes for me. And we do an event in the spring every year, or actually in February every year called uh, cardiac screening for the endurance athlete. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing, um, is that you can find places and our practice is 
uh, precision performance and physical therapy in Atlanta. And we do every February, we do that. So it's a family history screen and an EKG with a cardiologist. Mm -hmm. And the biggest thing is family history. That's Mm -hmm. the number one thing. So if you have a family history of uh, where people die young, that's definitely a red flag. Mm -hmm. And um, that would be some reason for you to go see a cardiologist. Mm -hmm. If you are training and for some reason all of a sudden you're doing the same things but it seems really really hard and you can't put your finger on why um so last week you went out for a five mile run and you ran an eight minute pace and this week it was 11 minutes and there was no reason that could be a red flag now that happens a lot in training but if it happens over and over again Mm -hmm. um so i i actually because i'm so sensitive to it i like all my athletes to have a cardiac screen Mm -hmm. (laughs) um but I usually do the family history piece first before I send them off. And I think that if you have any doubts in your mind at all, um, you should just go get a screen and you can go see a sports cardiologist. Mm -hmm. Uh, they're the best ones to see. If you go to a regular cardiologist, they're going to do what you did to me or what was done to me. Most likely is Mm -hmm. they won't, uh, take you seriously Mm -hmm. because you are so healthy. My resting heart rate was 39. Mm -hmm. Um, my blood pressure was low. I was 25 years old Mm -hmm. when I was diagnosed, I was 34 Mm -hmm. and, um, they just don't take you seriously. But if you find a sports cardiologist, they know that you're going to be that trained. So they take that into consideration when they do the testing. Mm -hmm. Right on. And, and what would you say to somebody like me? Exactly like me, um, who's, who's 45 years old and, and, and who has um, such a, a deep identification with being a runner and, and frankly is nervous about going to a cardiologist because he doesn't want to get bad news. Um, not, not, not that I ever have like any indications and not that I ever have like the sinking suspicion or anything in my subconscious, but just, just knowing that I'm getting to be an older person. Um, but yet I don't want to go because I don't want to get bad news and I don't want to be told I can't run. What's your response to that? I would say, George, do you want to see your sons grow up? <laughs> that's that, 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 that's a cheap trick. Dr. <laughs> <laughs> that's But that's what I would say. I mean, yeah. at this point, I wouldn't have said that before it happened to me, but that's yeah. honestly what I would say. You can, you can, you had, it's again, you have to make a choice. Mm-hmm. Are you going to take, take the steps to do the best you can so that you can be there for your family and your life? Or are you going to push it down and ignore it so that you can get a couple more runs in? Hmm. Yeah. Fair. Sorry. Sorry, buddy. Fair. <laughs> Fair. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about the other book. Let's talk about the one that you just wrote and that you're, you're on book tour for right now, right? Yes, absolutely. All right. Mm-hmm. It's called, it's called stop and pee running during pregnancy and postpartum. Um, like That's I said, right. I haven't read it yet. Sorry, Kate. I know most people you're probably talking to. I've actually read this book, um, but 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 I it's 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 in my Amazon wish list. Oh, thanks. So 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 it's there. Yeah, um, and and I, I will probably ultimately read it because because I, I do think the, the the topic's interesting, and I do work with uh, you know women who have who have had babies um, or, or who are about to have babies. Um, but what inspired this particular book? I mean, it's obviously what inspired you to write Racing Heart. Um, but but what inspired you to want to write this book about this topic? I actually thought before everything happened with Racing Heart, I wanted to write this book, Mm -hmm. Um, but I didn't have the time uh, or the confidence to do it, I Mm -hmm. think. Um, So I wrote the book because I ran while I was pregnant Mm -hmm. and I ran postpartum as well um, until I couldn't anymore. And I found that even though I had a lot of knowledge, there was so much bad information out there that it was unbelievable. Mm. Um, my first, uh, gynecologist I went to or OB that I went to told me I couldn't run anymore when I was pregnant. Mm-hmm. I, so I wanted to, I wanted to have some kind of guideline. I knew I was going to run. I probably, I knew I was probably going to run a half marathon, which I did. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just wanted to make sure I, I wasn't going to hurt my son. Mm-hmm. And she said, well, I think that it's unnecessary and you should find something else. Mm. And so I thought I was hormonal and maybe I was just angry when she said that. So I brought my husband back with me to the next appointment mm-hmm. and he said, no, no, you're not hormonal. She really did say that and it's unreasonable. So what I did is I found a physician. I, did, I was reading all the research. I knew I could do it mm-hmm. and I found a physician that would support me better. And so um, I ran all the way through pregnancy, I think until about 38 weeks and I did 
races and half marathons and uh, running was the only thing that made me not throw up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I was really grateful for it because it was awful throwing up all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I worked with a woman who is the co-author, uh, Blair Green, and she was a pelvic health therapist. And I knew that a lot of women went to see her for pelvic health stuff. And she always suggested that after you have a baby, go and get a pelvic health screen about six to eight weeks later. And mm-hmm. so I did that. Mm-hmm. And I learned so much from that appointment. And it made me realize, even in all the women that I treated, that they could have benefited from that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we just really delved into the research and found uh, found out what was true, what was not true, and then took a bunch of, uh, we went out and social, trolled social media and asked a lot of questions about what women thought mm-hmm. about pregnancy and postpartum. Mm-hmm. And um took all those myths that we found and answered them in the book. Cool. Very cool. Yeah. Um, particularly because those myths have a genesis somewhere, you know? Um, yeah. And, and it may well be from gynecologists who tell them they can't run when they're, when they're, when they're pregnant. Um, so. You'd be surprised at the things we heard. I mean, I could not believe what people were being told. Mm-hmm. It, it was just unbelievable. Hmm. So, so postpartum, um, <laughs> how, how far out does that reach? Um, because I'm for, thinking, I'm thinking about moms that I know who have been moms mm-hmm. for a while, but you mentioned like the, uh, the, the pelvic health screening. There are moms that I know that had kids several years ago whose hips have never quite been the same. I mean, yeah. is, is, is there, is there something in the book for them? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, one of the things that we say is postpartum is forever. <laughs> mm, right uh, it doesn't, okay, cool. that's it, actually super important for you to say. I'm glad you said that. Yeah, it, it is forever. And I think that as women, again, as women and then as athletes, we beat ourselves up. Um, I gave a lecture about postpartum and postpartum is forever not that long ago. And there was uh, a runner in the audience that came down and she was crying afterwards. And she was over a year postpartum and she had been putting so much pressure on herself to get back to where she was. And she just said, thank you for saying that because I thought I was supposed to be normal. Well, one of the things that we know, just one of the many things is that um, even breastfeed, if you're still breastfeeding a year after you've had a baby, your ligamentous changes haven't gone back. There's a lot of things that haven't gone back. You're at higher risk for stress fracture because all the, um, calcium that you're using to, uh, create the milk is coming from your bones. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of different things. So if you're breastfeeding, you actually, things don't return for even a year up or up to a year after you're done breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. And then women who are like 10 years out postpartum that, Mm -hmm. you know, aren't breastfeeding anymore, but have had a few children, had cesareans or have had um, natural births, they can still have issues as well. I see a lot of women who still look like they're pregnant if they stand straight with their rib cage. um, It's going anterior. They're like tucking their butt under. Those are two of the changes that happen during pregnancy Mm -hmm. that if they're not, uh, you don't do the neuromuscular retraining afterwards to correct that you're still walking around like that and not realizing it. Hmm. So um, your hips may never go back to the same size. Your, uh, your breathing may not change if you're not instructed how. So there are all these different things that can happen and that set you up for injury later if you don't take care of them early. Or hmm. if you haven't taken care of them in the last 10 years, you can take care of them now. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Very good. Um, well, you know, I, I, I joke about how I haven't read it. I'm going to read it. I, I, look, I, <laughs> okay. I, I do look forward to it because, because I think that's super interesting. Um, and and I, yeah, I, I work with a lot of moms, many of whom are, are less than 10 years out, but but a lot of whom have talked about, you know, that their, their hips have never quite been the same and things like that after they had kids. And, and uh, they have nagging injuries and, and things that they just sort of manage and deal with as a result of um, going through childbirth, which obviously takes a lot out of them. Well, and honestly, George, the thing that kills me and that part of the reason we wrote this book is it you don't need a lot. Like there's mm-hmm. sometimes there's like one or two things that we can give somebody mm-hmm. um, that I'll see in a gait analysis mm-hmm. and I'll say, oh, well, that's it. And we fix a couple things and they don't have issues anymore, whether it's urinary leakage because um, uh, because their uh, pressure system is off or it's uh, hip pain, hip impingement because they don't know how to breathe correctly or their posture. So sometimes it only takes a little bit or a few cues or a couple visits to change those things. Um, other times it takes longer, but yeah, I think there's a lot that can be done that we just don't know Very cool. or that people don't know. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Kate, I appreciate you writing the book. I think it's, uh, I think it's definitely 
addressing a need and filling a gap. So so kudos on that, and I do look forward to taking a look at it. And by all means, most pleasant exhaustion listeners, if you uh, if you read the book or if you have already read the book, uh, if you've seen Kate on her book tour talking about it, uh, reach out to us and let us know. So I would be interested to hear what folks have to say about it. Um, Me too. <laughs> <laughs> I'll bet. Kate Edwards, thanks for being with us here on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. Yeah, thanks, George. It was great. I really appreciate you asking me. Lots of cool information, and we appreciate you coming on here and sharing. We'll talk more soon. Bye. That'll do it for another edition of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITO Coaching Performance, by Blue Pineapple Travel, and by SlayRx. If you want to reach out to me, you can always find me, George, at ITOcoaching.com. If you want to reach out to Patrick, it's Patrick at ITOcoaching.com. Or you can send us a podcast email at pleasantpodcast at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at Pleasant Podcast, and we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash pleasantpodcast. If you want to find ITO Coaching and Performance, they're at itlcoaching.com, on Twitter at itlcoaching, and on Facebook, facebook.com slash itlcoachingandperformance. If you want to find Blue Pineapple Travel for all your travel needs, facebook.com slash bluepineappletravel, bluepineappletravel.com, and instagram.com slash bluepineappletravel. See all the incredible places where folks are traveling thanks to Blue Pineapple Travel. And, of course, our newest sponsor, SlayRx. You can find them at SlayRx.com, at Facebook.com slash SlayRx, or on Instagram at Instagram.com, here for, the number four, here for SlayRx. Don't forget the discount code as well, Pleasant2019. That'll get you 10% off anything at their website. On behalf of Patrick Ollinger, this is George Darden. Thanks again for joining us on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. See you next time.